The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus journeyed to a city called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd accompanied him. As he drew near to the gate of the city, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he was moved with pity for her and said to her, Do not weep. He stepped forward and touched the coffin. At this, the bearers halted. And he said, Young man, I tell you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, exclaiming, A great prophet has arisen in our midst, and God has visited his people. This report about him spread through the whole of Judea and in all the surrounding region. The Gospel of the Lord. Upon hearing the words of uh, our first reading where St. Paul is outlining the characteristics of a good bishop and essentially saying, to be a bishop, you have to be a decent human being and a decent man. The understandable reaction could be, well, I would hope so. <laughs> um, but what we see in the reading is not Paul simply belaboring the obvious. Rather, what we see is from the very beginning, the church had developed standards for those who would engage in apostolic service. And our modern age sometimes has difficulty with that. Not that we don't like standards, but all too often in our popular consciousness, we reduce the idea of ministry or service among the people of God to the idea of being called, of hearing a call and responding to the call. And St. Paul is effectively saying, as he writes to Timothy, being called is not enough. Being called is not where we rest with this. Rather, the proof of a call is quality of character. And this is important because the sense of being personally called, of having personally experienced something, is also radically private, radically individual, and by definition, very difficult for somebody outside of that personal experience to say yes or no. I simply have to take your word for it. And so know what Paul is saying. We don't take somebody's word for it by itself. Rather, a call must be tested. A call must be demonstrated. A call must be measured. And so St. Paul is also saying then, if a man is truly called to this ministry, there will be an impact on his life, and that is measurable. And that is something that can be witnessed. And so note what the church says. There's a twofold movement in a sense. There are those who seek the ministry. There are those who feel 
called, but then there is the church that must recognize the call. The call. And from early on, we see that the church had this standard. Quality of character matters. The quality of life matters. The community must test those who will engage in significant ministry and exercise significant responsibility. Because the community has a right to qualified ministers and good ministers. Sometimes we put the cart before the horse and we think it's about, I have a right to serve, when really the issue is the body of Christ has a right to those who are truly qualified, truly those of good character, truly those who are ready. That is, in fact, your right. And that has been the case from the beginning. That's why this statement, which on the one hand seems so trivial at first, is so very important. Note that from the apostolic age onward, this has been the case. And the insistence is that the people of God have a right to those who would seek to serve it being those who will serve it well. And that begins with the quality of their character. And then all the other training can come in. This is why religious communities have years-long processes of formation. This is why there are standards and years of study and preparation involved before a man is ordained to try to get to the point where our ministers are those of real character and quality. Tragically, we know that that doesn't always happen. But honestly, it's not for lack of trying. And from the very beginning, we see that the church has tried to do that. Even as it invites those who feel called to step forward to engage in ministry, it also discerns so that those who are entrusted with ministry are those who are worthy of that trust. And why? So St. Paul says, because they're being trusted with your care. They're being trusted with your spiritual well-being, and that is not a small thing by any means. And this issue of the well-being of the people of God is something that we see in the gospel reading today with this movement of Jesus. And this must have been a fairly impressive procession along the roads we hear that Jesus is going to the city of Nain, and there's a large crowd moving with him. And so this numerous group of people is approaching the city, and as they draw near to the city, they see another large group of people who are leaving the city gate. But this second large group of people is a funeral procession and they are bearing the body of a young man to his place of burial, his place of interment. This second procession is marked by sadness, by weeping, by broken hearts, and by many who are sharing in the affliction of the mother. And let's just linger with those words, the affliction of the mother. 
because this is what Jesus sees. St. Luke is very careful as he tells the story that the heart of Jesus as he draws near to this procession is struck with compassion for the mother. And remember what St. Paul said, if the bishop can't take care of his own family and his own household, what good is he going to be trying to take care of the people of God? If the deacon is indifferent to his own family, what makes us think he wouldn't be indifferent to the people of God? And so now, here we have this remarkable example of the Lord whose heart is moved with compassion for this mother. And let's just linger with this compassion for a moment because there's something beautiful lurking underneath the surface here. It is not simply that Jesus is touched by her personal sadness. Rather, in seeing her, he sees something else, too. We hear that the young man whose life ends tragically early was her only son, and that she was a widow. And here we have Jesus, a relatively young man in his early 30s. And he, likewise, is the only son of his mother. And that mother, the mother of Jesus, is likewise a widow. And there's something about this moment of the Lord being moved to compassion for a widow afflicted by the loss of her only son that would necessarily touch the heart of Jesus who knows that in a relatively short amount of time there will be another widow, deeply grieved and afflicted by the loss of her only son. And we see here then in this gesture of Jesus drawing near to the widow, a note of that deep compassion he would necessarily hold in his heart for his own mother. Knowing full well that his life will be rudely and violently ended, and that she would know those same stinging tears of affliction over the loss of her only son. And so Jesus goes to the widow. And oh, actually, he doesn't go to the widow. He goes to the coffin where the body of her son is being carried. But he goes to the coffin, and, you know, and again, Scripture is remarkable here. Not for the sake of the son, but for the sake of that mother who lost him. And he touches the coffin, and the movement toward the burial place stops. And now all eyes are on Jesus. And again, the sequence here is remarkable. The first thing he does is he stops the forward movement of death. He stops the forward movement of pain. He stops the forward movement of loss. And in stopping that movement, he signals that he is about to impart a new movement here. 
Where there had been the forward movement of death, there will now be a different forward movement. And so at this point, he speaks. And this too is remarkable. He speaks to ears that are dead. And so, at the risk of sounding silly, can dead ears hear anything? No. And yet he speaks to the young man. Assuming he is heard, assuming he will be listened to, he speaks into death, and he's heard. Young man, I say to you, arise. This is absolutely remarkable, where Scripture has other incidents by, of prophets raising those who have died, but never by a word. Never by a word, young man, I say to you, arise. And the word of Jesus reaches into death. The word of Jesus reaches through those dead ears. The word of Jesus reaches into that body, which has no life, and life is given to that body. And the young man sits up and begins to speak. At a word. At a word. Note the power of the word of Christ. Note the power of the word of God. Note the power of this word which brings life even to the dead. This word which can be heard even by the dead. This word so mighty, even the dead respond to it. And in doing this, the Lord speaking with real authority, because he gives an order. Young man, I'm telling you, get up. Already he identifies himself as the Lord of life, as that one who is mighty even over death as that one who can be victorious even over the grave. And the widow is the occasion of this. The widow, deeply wounded, deeply grieved, deeply afflicted by the loss of her only son, sees her only son rise from the dead. She sees her only son leave the coffin, and she receives this son from Jesus. Just as we say that families receive the gift of children from God, note here how the Lord himself makes a gift of this son to her again. She receives her son from the Lord. And now there is no longer the forward movement of death. There is the forward movement of joy. Now there is no longer a journey that ends merely in the grave, in loss and sadness. There is instead a journey newly begun that begins with life and moves toward life. Because the heart of Jesus was moved with compassion for the mother, the widow, who lost her only son.
And in doing this, even though the Virgin Mary is not there at his side, we would be hard put not to notice that this too is its own form of message. That that other widow, knowing that deeper sadness over the loss of an only son who is greater than the one who was just raised, that that other widow would know the joy of a son coming back from the grave. That that other widow would know the joy of a son who is victorious over death. That other widow would know the joy of the greatest grief dissolving into the greatest of victories and the greatest of joys. What a remarkable moment this is. The Lord who is himself, the only son of a mother who is a widow, moved with pity for a widow who grieves the loss of her only son. And out of that pity demonstrates that his word is victorious even over death. And that when he is present, sorrow, sadness, and defeat are never the decisive words and never final words. Rather, where he is present, life, victory, and goodness, those are the truly decisive words. What a great mystery indeed this is. And how wonderfully it fulfills what St. Paul says, that the one who loves his family well is one who likely will love the people of God well too and how important that characteristic is. And we, here in this place, dedicated to that widowed mother who gave the world her only son, have the privilege of that same son of the widowed mother being here on this altar, where he comes in his victory, where he comes in his goodness, where he comes in the strength of his word and his glory and his might to be with us. And what a remarkable gift that is. And why? So that when we stretch out our hands and we receive him, he likewise puts into our hearts a renewed movement of life and joy and goodness. And that indeed is a very great gift. Amen.